Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have John Gliotta on the show. Mr. Gliotta was appointed in August 2017 as the Independent Police Reviewer for the Office of Independent Review of the City of Fresno, which provides neutral third-party review of police policies, procedures, strategies, and internal investigations. He comes to the city of Fresno from the Fresno County Sheriff's Office, where he worked as a crime analyst for their patrol division. Before working for the Sheriff's Department, Mr. Gliotta spent more than 27 years with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI, where he was consistently recognized as an outstanding agent and established a national reputation for his exceptional organizational and analytical skills. He was most recently promoted to the assistant special agent in charge of the Sacramento FBI office, where he managed all criminal investigative units, including civil rights and many of the satellite offices within the division, including the Fresno FBI office. Mr. Gliotta has also served as an assistant inspector of the inspection division at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. He is a graduate of Western Virginia University Institute of Technology, with a Bachelor of Science in Business Management, and he has also completed training at FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. This was a fascinating conversation, and we cover a wide range of topics, including policing, reform, compliance, and much more. One small disclaimer at the front for my listeners who are skeptical about law enforcement reform, I would say this to you if you happen to fall into that camp. Don't sit in your silo. You need to talk with people you disagree with. It's important. You still might arrive at the same conclusions. I certainly hold the same views that I did before having this conversation. But now I am better informed to make the case for the changes that I want to see after talking with someone like John. And on that note, let's go meet John and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. So, John, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Well, being that I'm downtown, I like to patronize some of the local places down here. And uh, probably a Kiku's is probably a Japanese uh, restaurant, which is right on Tulare, which is like, 30 seconds from my office is probably one of the best. They have an app, which is very helpful. You can do everything on the app and you go there and it's right, waiting for you, ready to go. Uh, and then uh, Gus Kebabs, uh, I think it's Kern's Street's actual. The, the Gus Burger is a hard thing to beat. Uh, I've never had that. What is, oh, what is that? Well, <laughs> check your cholesterol before and after. <laughs> okay. I'm always up for an adventure. So tell me, <laughs> but what it's, is it? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to beat. And then well, the funny thing is Chicken Shack there on the Fulton Mall. Because uh-huh. uh, I was telling my daughters, who's now a teacher, I said, man, that's some good food there at Chicken Shack. And she, said, she still calls me daddy. She said, daddy, I am not going to eat from someplace with shack in the name of it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's like number one on the list now. Uh, once you taste it, so and then even to Chico's because I gotta you know patronize my my fellow Italians uh, right here at the Visadero and Abbey. That's a nice place to go to also. What do you? Um, well, you know this is kind of tangentially food related, but uh, someone that works downtown, I think one of the things that the downtown restaurants are trying to do is keep those people there after work. You know. Um, and it's, it's hard. Uh, what, what's your perspective on that in terms of like government staff staying around to have a drink or have a meal or something? You know, uh, I don't, I, I haven't seen it and I really haven't had the opportunity, so I can't discount it. But I, I think absent that, I don't know if there's a lot of draw to keep you downtown after five. Uh, I'm sure the, the, uh, the restaurants and, and breweries are few and far between. So I don't know, because, you know, I've lived in many different cities and I've worked in different cities where, man, downtown is where it's at in the evening. And it is for a city this size, it is, uh, you know, I wish I knew the magic answer to that. But that is a little bit different seeing how desolate it is downtown here versus some of the other cities after five. Yeah, it's it could be sprawl. It could be a lot of things. Um not having a public train. Cause if you do get a couple drinks, you want to like take an Uber or the, 
or some kind of light rail back, you know, and I know that's, that's part of the thing too. And there, I mean, there is kind of one strip, but you know, it's just that kind of one area. And, you know, I've lived in LA and San Francisco and the great thing about when you go out is you have this row of places that you can just kind of meander from one to the next. And that's kind of the allure. And, you know, I mean, it's fine to go hang out at one brewery or do something like that, but it's, it's, it's not, it's not the same and it's not like other cities. Well, yeah, I'm not telling you anything being in LA and San Francisco. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's really, well, it's really difficult to see why it isn't like similar to that, even though it's, you know, not quite the size, but still it's a decent sized population. here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so I'm excited to talk to you today. I've got a few uh, different questions. We'll just kind of start with the basics though. Um, just really talking about what is the office of independent review um, just at its core, just kind of structurally, what, what role does it serve? And then uh, what are some of the goals um, of the office? Sure. Technically the office was, was actually created back in 2009, but, uh, and we're trying to get out in front. That's why I'm doing this podcast with you because prior to me coming on board and prior to mayor brand taking office, it was handled by out-of-state individuals. The first individual was a retired judge in the state of Washington who was doing it from Washington and come down periodically. And then it was done by a retired FBI agent out of Salt Lake City who would come in here two weekends a month and go back. So uh, Mayor Brand came on board, so we need to change some things because one, very few people know about it. Two, it's tough to say that we were having some kind of oversight because the goal is to provide trust, transparency, and, and uh, connection with the community uh, and you know oversight with the community based on this position. Because I, I report to the city hall. I don't report to the police department or the chief. So it's, it's, a, it's a neutral entity to do a third party overview of that. So when Mayor Brand came on board, he changed it. So the person has to be full-time in town. So I'm full-time in town. I'm on call 24 seven. If uh, there's an officer involved shooting 2 a.m., 3 a.m., four in the afternoon, I get called out like the rest of them. And they permit me to do a walkthrough of the scene just like they would for the detectives, for the chief of police, uh, for the lieutenants, uh, homicide detectives. So I get a walkthrough. And then they also afford me the opportunity to sit in on the interviews, not physically in the same room, but monitor the interviews that are being conducted of witnesses, officers, whether or not they be witness officers or involved officers. Uh, so that's a little bit different uh, than it has been done in the past. And then I do things like this where we're trying to reach out to the community. We speak to the newly sworn officers so they get an idea. You know, we understand you've got a tough job. You also have to understand there's somebody that's going to uh, acknowledge if there's a wrongdoing. So, we don't want them to be hesitant. We don't want them to, you know, hurt themselves in any way because they're hesitating uh, their actions. But, uh, you know, and I tell them, I will call it like it is. And I've been in and out of Fresno. I was an FBI supervisor here for years ago. So I've supervised local law enforcement that were assigned to our offices, assigned to our task forces. So I have a handle on it. We also do ride-alongs. Pre-COVID, we were doing uh, ride-alongs quite frequently. But post, you know, during COVID, it's, it's put a damper on those things. So basically, when someone files either what would be a complaint and concern with the police department, they may open up what's called an independent or uh, internal affairs investigation. So the police department has given me full access to their database, to their files. So I wait for them to complete their investigation. And depending on how they rule, if they find it, because it doesn't have to be a sworn officer. It could just be any employee that has uh, FPD uh, uniform on, whether they work at the front counter, dispatcher, 911 call taker. So when they're done with their investigation, if they find that their employee or their officer is not at fault, I will go through and make sure that is what I deem to be the correct decision. So, uh, and then I post all my results in a quarterly report, which appear on the city website, uh, my quarter report every three months and it's there and officers and employees are protected to a certain degree specifically the officers 
by the Police Peace Officer Bill of Rights. Although the community may scream, we need to know what happened to that officer on that case. By law, it's all California law, you can't specifically tell, it's a personnel matter. But I will list the case number, the, or summary, of a brief snippet of what the case is about, what the PD came up with, and then what I came up with. A good portion of the time, we're in agreement with one another. But on occasion, I disagree, and if I disagree, I will point out why. And I try and do it constructively, because I don't know, you know, some people think I'm too friendly with the police department, but on the flip side, I say, we're trying to accomplish the same thing. They want to have the best possible police department they can have out on boots on the ground. And I'm also trying to do what's right for the law enforcement profession, because being in it for over 30 years, I don't like it when an officer is portrayed as doing something wrong. It's, I still consider myself a law enforcement person, so it's a blemish on my career. It's, it's, it's tarnishing the badge that I carry. So I try and correct them in a way that it'll be, it'll be better perceived in the future. Or sometimes I'll make recommendations. That's what I do in my report. They may, I may agree with what they did. It's within policy because that's what I have to hold them to, what's existing policy. I may say, you did right by policy. However, I think your policy may need to be tweaked a little bit. So I'll make recommendations. And I will say they've been very receptive. Since I've been here, I've made almost 50 uh, recommendations, whether or not it's, it's a training issue, a policy issue. And they have made changes or, made, or counseled the officer in over 80, I'd say something like 85% of the time. So that's what we're striving for. And I'm, I'm getting reception from them. And, you know, it's a, it's a team effort. It's not a confrontational thing because they don't, they're not obligated to, to make any changes. They can say, John, thanks for your input, but we're sticking to our guns and what we got. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, I, I've, I have a, a friend, uh, a pair of friends who uh, one's a assistant district attorney and the other one's a public defender and uh, you know, they're friends with each other. And uh, there's this kind of mentality sometimes in their respective environments that they should be more uh, kind of <laughs> not, not have a friendly relationship because it, it creates this kind of uh, veneer of, uh, you know, corruption in the kind of the way that you're talking about, right? If, you're, if, if the independent reviewer is, is, is being polite to the police, uh, you know, it, it, it creates this image in people's heads. But, then, but I, I think what people misunderstand is that in order to get things done, you have to be persuasive and polite. You know, I mean, if you're in Congress and you're trying to pass a bipartisan legislation or something, like you, you can't get on the podium and demonize the Republicans or Democrats and then expect to go sit in a boardroom with them and hammer out a deal. It just doesn't work that way, right? Exactly. I mean, I've, I've supervised uh, agents. I've supervised local law enforcement. I've instructed. I was a firearms instructor, a SWAT member. and so. There's a way to get things done, and sometimes you have to you have to concede and, and you have to withdraw. I mean, just going for the jugular every time is not going to get a whole lot accomplished, and that's and, and, and I'd just be spinning my wheels. So I recognize that, and I I try and do it very straightforward. I used to tell agents when they come into my office, you may ask me a question, you may not like my response, but you will get a response, and when you walk out, it's over with. We'll move forward to the next issue, and that's the way I address it with the PD. So far, they've treated me well. They don't harbor any ill feelings. And uh, I've never overly criticized them where I thought something was demeaning, you know, in a demeaning way towards them. I try and do it's constructive criticism. I'll put it that way. Yeah. So um, I watch a ton of cop shows, like many Americans. Mm-hmm. Probably my favorite is, uh, is Bosch. Uh, he's an LA cop. And it's such a good show. I've watched every episode. It's such a good show, but Bosch just hates internal affairs with all of his being. Like he does anything well, to try. He's and in there so often. <laughs> he, he, it's like he tries to piss them off on purpose. And I, I, I guess is that a is that a stereotype that's accurate? Um, uh, is internal affairs does it have this kind of? Uh, is there an antagonistic relationship? Well, normally, uh, and you've got to understand where the officers are coming from when it's, it's kind of like when you're in uh, when you're in a rookie camp in the NFL and someone knocks at your door and you realize, Oh no, I'm getting cut. When I reaches out to you, it's, Oh no, it's never to say, Hey, you did a great job. 
It's all, it's, it's usually because someone has made an allegation against you and we have to look into it and they have to be fair and they have to be, be nonpartisan and they have to address it. Now, it, it, you know, on the flip side, because, and that's probably one of the one detriments of having internal affairs, it's made up of people within the department. Right. At some point are going to be out of internal affairs and maybe working alongside the person they just investigated. But on the flip side, you have some oversight to make sure that they're not giving someone a pass. So it isn't as agonist, you know, agonizing and confrontational, et cetera, as would you portray, because I watch Bosch myself. And I, I see, I mean, one, you don't treat internal affairs the way Bosch treats the internal affairs. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not going to do you any justice. But on the flip side, uh, they're, they're professional. Uh, I've unique, and I watch the interviews because they give me access to the interviews that they conduct. And I've yet to hear a internal affairs investigator be overly critical of someone. And when the questions, they're very, they're very soft-spoken and they're very calm. And I've yet to see any, you know, accusations, et cetera, or anything hurled at them to, to make them be, you know, uh, resistant to responding. Because one thing you have to understand too, an internal affairs investigation is administrative. The difference between administrative and criminal, in a criminal investigation, you could always claim the fifth because you don't self-incriminate. So you don't have to answer the question, even on a stand in court. With internal affairs, it's administrative. You are compelled to answer the questions. If you fail to answer the questions, you are subject to discipline up to termination for failing to answer the questions. However, it's basically set off to the side because none of your answers in internal affairs, since you're compelled, because you know, by law, you, you're not, you don't have to self-incriminate. So anything that you answer is shelved and sealed and is never used in a criminal case because maybe something you did may evolve into a criminal case. They can't hear, see, or, or uh, see what happened or transpired during your internal affairs investigation. Interesting. So do you think that you know, internal affairs should move? I mean, because what you're talking about is these people have to they'll go into internal affairs and then they'll come back into some other departmental role. Did, should it slowly be kind of moved out into a realm of retired police officers or people that don't have like a, you know, they don't have an incentive to not push too hard or something? I don't know if you could accomplish that because you, you need the, the internal affairs folks are up to speed as to what all the changes are going on and they know uh, the policies of what's most recent uh, and they're respected and they're, they're basically current on everything that's going. Uh, unfortunately, when you, when it's going to be, you may have a, you know, sprinkling of retired folks to keep it a balance because uh, almost every internal affairs interview is conducted with two investigators. So it's a, that's a you know, possible suggestion. You have a non-current uh, employee in there with a, with a current IA investigator. Uh, but you know, that's also subject to, uh, it's part of Police Officer Bill of Rights, it's part of the union uh, agreement. So those are some of the hurdles you'd, you'd have to overcome. But it, it would definitely have to be someone from the law enforcement experience. Yeah. So um, my partner works in uh, CDCR and um, her job exists because of a lawsuit. So I'm very familiar these days with compliance <laughs> and how important compliance is. Um, and it seems like law enforcement in particular, compliance issues are much more complicated than other industries. So how would you, how do you think about compliance within uh, police departments? Well, I, they try and be as transparent as possible. So, I mean, like a lot of people know, don't know it. And I tell them the, F, the Fresno Police Department's policy manual is online. So if you think an officer is acting incorrectly or is doing something wrong, you can go online and read their policy. Now, uh, you know, I, I understand what you say with, with CDCR because uh, that, that was probably created as a result of possibly the Corcoran case, which happened a few years ago, which our office, because I was with the FBI at the time when that case went, went to court. Uh, and so 
compliance, one thing it does vary because there's peace officer standards and training in Sacramento, which is establishes guidelines for all the agencies that want to be remain certified within the state of California. So there is some overall guidance guidelines. However, compliance does vary from department to department. Hypothetically, I won't mention a city, but you get a small department with maybe 20, 30 sworn, their compliance is not going to be the same as someone like Fresno PD, where you have people in place 24-7 that are monitoring compliance that also have body cam, because that's a big thing. Some of the smaller departments can't afford to do it. It's not that they don't want to do it. They can't afford to do it. So that also uh, yeah, goes in, it's, you know, hand in hand with compliance. Yeah. And it also, I think people think about compliance always as like after the fact, kind of punitively. Uh, but compliance is also, uh, you know, instilling good habits, instilling a transparent culture where people are encouraged to ask questions if they don't understand. Um, and I think that's part of the problem is that we only, we're only focused on the after the fact compliance, like that some rule has been broken. So how do we deal with this legally or administratively? But I think the other important part of the compliance is building a culture of compliance, right? A culture right. that that encourages those kind of good habits. You know, that's correct because I uh, have, we've gone through uh, some of the, the training that the police department uh, gives to their officers. And I will tell you, uh, I've dealt with departments across the U.S. because when I was with the FBI, I actually flew around the country inspect our own offices. And I can tell you the training they get, and that's where a lot of the compliance comes into play is, as they're going through becoming officers and then remedial training and uh, you know repetitive training they go through, they preach the compliance. And so if an officer is not in compliance, it's not because they weren't instructed, they weren't told. It's either just uh, you know, a, a, a mistake, an error in judgment, et cetera, because they do a pretty good job of making sure the officers are in compliance. And that's what internal affairs is there for, because basically what they're looking at is whether or not you were in compliance with the policies in place. Yeah. And you also want, I mean, you want good supervisors. Like, you know, if you're, if you're a new employee at any job where there's legal issues with what you do, um, you want to have that relationship with your supervisor that you can come to them and say, Hey, I had this situation yesterday. I wasn't sure where this falls along the guidelines. This is what I did. Did I do it right or wrong? As opposed to cultures that <laughs> encourage secrecy and you keep it to yourself, you know, and it's hard to create those environments where people can be vulnerable in a way where they don't know and feel at risk. You know, I agree. And, you know, one thing it's people, a lot of people don't understand because I printed in my reports more than uh, it's double the number of cases that are initiated are initiated internally. So it's the department themselves recognizing the fact that their officers may have made an error in judgment because I'll, let, I'll list how many cases were initiated by community member complaints, you know, people out in the public complaining, or how many is initiated within the department themselves who self-initiate. And it's usually two to one. Sometimes it's greater than two to one. So, you know, and that's the thing I think sometimes the public doesn't comprehend is they're doing a pretty decent job of policing themselves. Yeah. Um, granted, they don't see everything, and that's why we're here, because we have never denied someone to file a complaint through us. We take every, every complaint and we return all calls, all emails, all text messages within 24 hours. We try and be as responsive as possible. I don't know of another profession in which someone within that profession in, I won't name a city because then I'll get that mayor calling me. Okay, I'll say Fresno. Where some Fresno, uh, an officer does something wrong, where all of a sudden every police officer in the next, you know, across the nation is subject to criticism, to ridicule because of one officer making an error in judgment in one city. Uh, I mean, what happened uh, back east? All of a sudden, you know, people were portraying, you know, potentially officers here being the same way. Uh, regardless of what it is, uh, you're right, because last year, the PD answered over 400,000 calls for service. 400,000 calls for service. And you look at the number of incidents in which uh, things were done wrong, regardless of 
you know, one error is always people like think one is too many. However, you the percentage, it's minuscule when you think of 400,000 calls for service. Uh, and that's the average. There have been 400,000 or better for like the last four or five years. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in defense to that point of view, I think when people carry guns, right, they have to be held to a higher standard. And that's, right. and that's part of it as well is that um, there is this kind of pursuit of perfect uh, when you have, in some ways, uh, the ability to take life, um, you know, to you know, do these things that are, are serious. And so I, I, I understand that point of view. I also, I'm a big facts guy. And so I want to stick to the facts and not go, go into the, the, the media hysteria that can, can easily engulf us. Um, but I do want to talk about um, bias a little bit, because I think this is the big, the big question, the elephant in the room. And there's been a lot of um, great research and work on this. Um, and uh, one of the books that came out a few years ago was called Biased, Uncovering the Hidden Prejudice that Shapes the Way We Think, See, Think, and Do. Um, and it's a sociologist that wrote it. And there's a quote, and I think she was quoting from someone else um, when she pulled this quote. I think it's from Walter Lippmann, yeah, so another uh, sociologist or economist or something. Anyway, so this is the quote that I pulled, and I think it's worth talking about. Um, and it says, uh, there is an economy in stereotyping, for we attempt to see all things fresh in detail rather than as types and generalities is exhausting. We are not equipped to deal with so much subtlety. We have to reconstruct it on a simpler model before we can manage with it. And I think a, a lot of the issues that we're seeing is when, you know, <laughs> the humans are, we just, we, we're just geared towards stereotyping. I mean, you know, if I, you know, to go back to the jungle example, you know, if I'm uh, a Neanderthal and I, and when I walk past that lagoon, there's a saber-toothed tiger. Like every time I see a lagoon, there's something in my body that's going to, that's going to trigger um, that there could be a saber-toothed tiger because I've learned to associate that. And I think the, the challenge, right, is, is, is letting go of that bias or perspective or that knee-jerk reaction to how things we think things are going to go and see them fresh and clear. So how do you think about uh, bias and um, what are you, what do you think are ways to, to maybe not overcome it, but mitigate it? Well, probably the first thing that you have to do, and believe me, I'm not a psych major. In fact, that's probably my worst subject in college, but the, the number one, the first step is recognizing the fact that everyone I think I don't think anyone's exempt from having a bias. So recognizing the fact that yes, you have a bias, I have a bias, and then acknowledging what those biases are. And I know, and if you're reading up on it, you probably know as well as I do. There's so many tests out there, and I'm not endorsing anything specific, but there's a Harvard and bias uh, implicit bias test that's readily available on the internet that is pretty thorough. Uh, and it's an offshoot of uh, two gentlemen that wrote uh, a bias study from years ago. So that's one of the first things is recognizing you have a bias. Everyone has a bias. Some people say certain biases may be, I don't want to say good, but are better than the, the bad biases. But for the most part, there's a bad bias. And it starts at a young age. Uh, if someone has a bias, you can't really fault them if they're in a profession right now because all of a sudden you recognize they have a bias. Biases are built upon years and years of maybe environments that they had no control of. So it isn't something that's generated overnight. So I do think that's the one thing. And so they have bias training at the PD. They do a pretty good job of it. But uh, I think the officers need to recognize that everyone has a bias. So, and they're all, a lot of them are different from one another. And then there's ways to possibly overcome it. One is interacting with, if you have a bias against a certain makeup within the community, maybe you need to be more involved in that area because you need to also recognize it and take a step back when you're making your decisions. Now, is this decision based on a factor? Because maybe I think that these type of people or this uh, makeup, this economic structure or whatever, is I have a bias against it. So if you recognize it, it won't be so, uh, evident when you make your decisions. Uh, so it's slow down, take a, take a, take a back step, uh, engage in the community in those areas, 
And like I said, the number one thing is recognizing you have recognized you may have more than one bias. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a challenge. I mean, I've heard those stories about uh, police officers that live way outside of the cities that they serve or uh, move way out to the suburbs and end up policing uh, interiors of cities where um, it's very different, you know, socioeconomically, uh, ethnically. And so it, it's obviously complicated to ask people to, uh, you know, engage differently or, you know, better with those communities because, you know, it's, it's just a natural thing that uh, people are kind of self-segregators these days. And particularly in Fresno, um, where it is such a segregated community in so many ways. Um, but uh, I, I was going to ask you uh, how you think about um, you as, a, as an independent reviewer. How do you think about uh, your own bias in looking at these cases? Well, one, being in law enforcement for over 30 years, obviously, uh, you know, I, I have somewhat of a uh, so, you know, support of the law enforcement field. But on the flip side of that, I also have integrity because of my career with, with the FBI. I had integrity where I've had to report some of my own people. Uh, and if you go back and look, uh, there was only four times where a FPD officer, or I shouldn't say FPD officer, officers within the Central Valley were brought up on federal charges. And I was with either in the office here with the FBI or executive oversight of this office in Sacramento on each one of those cases. So uh, I recognize that I do support law enforcement. Uh, my brother and I started law enforcement together many years ago. Tomorrow he's retiring. He stayed with a local, he's with a local, very small town back, uh, back east. Tomorrow's his last day. So I do have a support for law enforcement, but on the flip side, because I hold those hold law enforcement in high regard, I, I'm also just as, as, as stern in addressing the issues because I don't want the misfortunes or the missteps by those officers to be reflective of, across the board. So uh, the, do I enjoy criticizing an officer, pointing out uh, the deficiencies? No, but am I, am I gonna look the other way because I think law enforcement is a, is a tough job. No, uh, I, it, I make a hard decision. I may not, uh, there's a couple studies out there and one I think uh, an article just came out within the last few days where they found that civilian oversight boards, which are the non-law enforcement entities that have been created to oversee certain departments are more lenient towards officers than some of the internal affairs yeah, in fact, Interesting. one of them's a professor, I want to say the University of Nebraska, did, did a study on, he's been investigating uh, oversight for like some, his claims 30 or 40 years. And then there was an article that came out in the last couple of days that said that. Now, who's to say that that's what would happen here? But uh, you're right, because someone who's never been involved in law enforcement has never actually been in a high stress situation sees, unfortunately, a lot of people, and one of the things I stress, I don't make emotional decisions. I, my decision is based on facts. So I don't base my decision on someone's 10 second cell phone clip that didn't catch what happened, precipitated the whole situation. So if someone sees that cell phone clip, that officer needs to be fired immediately because they're not aware what precipitated that. Now, if the officer just, you know, with no, no sound justification did something maybe you need to address it correctly but i also think on the flip side they need to have an idea of what goes on when someone's resisting because people think you know just because the, the individual the subject didn't swing at the officer didn't pull a gun or a knife they just stood there you can get five people in here right now and i almost guarantee you i could resist not being handcuffed and understand that is resisting even if you stiffen up and you're not complying it's resisting the use of force never ever pretty no matter how menial or how minimal it is it's never pretty and i gotta tell you i think the officers would much rather avoid use of force than than applying it so uh it's a it's a like you said a very fine line 
as to uh, the oversight aspect of it and it's changing the culture as to who could actually do it. I do think if you get the right personnel together, uh, you know, you want the community to be satisfied with the police department. So if there's things that's bothering them that they want to uh, include or they want to incorporate into some type of training, you know, you never want to discount it. You want to listen to them. And uh, I think that's probably a good, possibly is a good mix where, like you said before, you have to be on the same page. You have to be cooperating and you have to be open-minded. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that you and I and police officers, we're all government employees. We're paid by tax dollars and we're serving a community, whether it's education, uh, providing a safe environment, whatever it is. Um, and we need to yeah, be accountable to them um, and providing a service. You know, if the service is not good, um, feedback is great. I mean, I, I think probably the best thing uh, that people can do is just be vigilant in watching things as they happen and reporting things when they see it and be consistent about it. Um, and I, I, cause I think the more information that you have, right, the more equipped you are to make uh, positive changes. Um, but I want to take a step back and, uh, uh, so, uh, you know, sometimes these, you know, departments they're they're I don't want to say they're good or bad departments but there's departments that we've heard about that do things really well and there's departments that do things less well um, so when you when you go into a police department and you're kind of being an observer uh, what are some signs that things are maybe a good environment or a good police department in the sense that like people are being compliant there's a clear uh, transparent culture um, and what do you think uh, what do you think the factors are in, in departments that, I don't know, things get haywire. Um, is, is, that a, is that a top-down, is that a leadership thing, you think, or is that more of a, a kind of like a, a culture of the employees? Well, it's, a, it's two-pronged. It's one, training. It all starts with the training. And two, it is a leadership thing, because if you don't have adequate leadership and you don't have leadership that is willing to come forward when they see something, how I view it is just between an officer and someone from, from, the, from the public. I mean, and this is what I used to tell the agents and the officers I supervised. At the end of the day, you were going home probably to a warm meal, just kick back. You could turn any channel on TV that you want, but yet that person that you're arresting is going to be probably having a bologna sandwich, maybe if they're lucky, and they got to watch the TV in the, in the, the room that, you know, 10, 20 inmates or di dictating what channel to watch. So don't stoop to the level and don't get, you know, there's no reason to mistreat them. It's tough enough for their situation. If you, if, and I would see it, if you treat the, the people that you interact with, with respect, nine times out of 10, you're going to be treated with the same type of respect back. But these officers that I see sometimes get a little chip on their shoulder and they got to prove who's the bigger person. That's where I think those are the ones that, that need either some remedial training or they need to be called out by their leadership. And if their leadership permits it to continue, that's what then it, it permeates throughout the department because other officers say, man, well, I just saw the way so-and-so treated that. I guess it's okay to treat people that way. No, it's not. Policing has changed dramatically just in the last five years, let alone last 20 years. And it's probably going to continue swinging that way a little bit more to the point where the community is satisfied with how uh, the general population is being treated. Yeah, and that was my uh, second to last question I was going to ask you is, um, given some of the challenges that uh, law enforcement has faced, where, where do you hope law enforcement will be 10, 15 years from now? Well, I hope they get back to the point where they're actually respected for the job they do. Uh, because uh, when I, I worked patrol many years ago, uh, and, and never once did I have an excessive use of force complaint about me, et cetera, because, uh, you know, I've had, I've actually, as an FBI agent, arrested interstate pedophiles and, or, or, uh, or child porn criminals that sent a thank you note because I treated them properly. As much as that's probably one of the most egregious violations you you can think of the way people deal with child porn and child molestation, but yet you know I treated them as as a gentleman, and I've got a thank you note. So you know 
it's going to the point where everyone's screaming for reform, screaming for reform. There are some things that probably do need to be changed. And I think most people that have a long uh, career in law enforcement will agree with that. But on the flip side, there are people asking for certain things within reform that I don't think are realistic. One, either by the law within the state, uh, et cetera, or, you know, you know, some people want to have the ability to impose discipline on officers. Well, it's, it's kind of difficult to impose discipline if you have no experience within law enforcement. So it's going to swing and you're going to see restrictions being imposed, getting imposed. And I think it, once people recognize, okay, I, I think we've made an impact and maybe we'll relax a little bit because right now you're having a hard time getting people to apply to be a law enforcement officer because they're being so scrutinized by the public. Uh, so I think that's, that's going to get difficult. And the last thing you want to see is people, departments lowering their standards because they can't get applicants. Because if you start getting, you know, and I'm not going to be discriminatory towards anyone, but if you start lowering the standards and you're getting people that would never have made it a couple years ago, what are you, what are you going to end up with? You're going to basically be the root of the problem by the people that you're employing. Yeah. I mean, this, it's the same, the same is true with teachers, you know, like, uh, in teacher shortages, uh, <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll take anyone with a pulse sometimes. Right. And it's, it's, you know, it, as a culture, you have to pay for the things if you want them to be done well, right. You have to, you have to, and pay is not only financially, it's, it's, it's in other ways too. And I think, um, I guess my question is, are there, do you think there are structures within law enforcement that need to be changed? I mean, beyond just like being more vigorous and encouraging uh, officers to uh, treat, treat community members with respect, be polite, be respectful, those kind of like basic human niceties. Are there, are there bigger structural things that need to change? Or do you see law enforcement as just an agency that just needs to you know, that the system works as it is. It just needs to be run better. Now, there are things because I read uh, specifically towards Fresno when they came up with 73 recommendations. Some of them, I think, may be beneficial for, and, and I think the, the new chief is receptive to some of those changes. So I do think that, you know, structurally things can be changed to where you actually have some uh, cohesiveness between the community and the police department. So I do think that there's some changes that are forthcoming and, and will be incorporated. And uh, just like when the body cams were introduced, uh, it, it was funny because some we ca I call them because I consider myself an old dog too. You know, new change, new technology. You know, you're resistant right out of the gate. I don't need somebody watching over me. But I tell you what, you talk to the officers today; they'd much rather rather have their body cam than not because a good portion of the time an issue comes down to, you know, the community makes a complaint and the officer says, that's not the way it happened. So who do you believe? So a body cam is not the answer for everything, but it is a good step forward. And so uh, that was something that was a structural change that you're seeing nationwide now. Uh, communities are forcing their departments to incorporate body cams within the departments that don't have, that they don't have anymore. So that's a that's a situation in which civilian oversight, even though they maybe didn't, you know, have experience working in law enforcement, that's a positive thing. And I know that at first that there was departments that resisted that. Um, but it seems like if you one have good officers working, then you know, it 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 can only help you, right? <laughs> I mean, resisting that is just such a bad publicity move. We don't want to be watched. And I don't know how how departments don't see that that's just not a good look to say we don't want to be watched right it's like the, like the, the secret club where we don't want anybody in to let them know what we're doing now and, and that's the thing with transparency that way i would view it as if you had an oversight board you you want them there so you could actually be proud of what you're doing and you can show them listen here we're doing this is what we're doing so uh let me know if you find something wrong and what's going on here but we're proud of what we're doing and we want to display it and we want everyone to see it. And that's probably a good way of doing it. But the thing is, you also want the oversight board to be receptive to that and not have any biases right out of the gate that everybody in the department is doing something wrong. But it could be a good meeting of the minds. 
Uh, and we'll see what happens going forward if you work in Fresno. Yeah, and I think it's important, you know, because um, people listening to this, that things are always more complicated, you know. Whether you have body camera footage, you're also dealing with laws, you're dealing with police unions, you're dealing with administrative policies. I mean, there's so many factors at play that, you know, body cams are great, but there's, there's bigger systems in play and stakeholders that people often forget about that make things so much more complex because, you know, we like things black and white. We just want to, you know, if we see something then we want immediate action, but there's all these, there's a, there's a superstructure of all these (laughs) policies that sit over the top of everything that make it complicated. And that's, you know, I think that the the part that bothers people is, you know, when you, uh, all these famous cases of these uh, officer involved shootings where, uh, they're not charged. Um, and it's, there's just, it's hard to be mad at laws, right? You know, it's hard to be mad at like a rule. You want to be mad at a person or an organization or whatever. Um, and laws can be changed, but it's, it's complicated. It's, it's obviously complicated. It is. Cause I will tell you, I in almost across the board. I don't know if the people that are sometimes, you know, presenting arguments or, uh, protesting certain things, if they've actually read the California state law of what's permitted as far as the use of force. Now, some of those are being changed and they're being more restrictive uh, because you're seeing now, unfortunately, just north of us, uh, last week you had an officer arrested for a shooting uh, and he was immediately terminated by his department. He, he was arrested. Uh, so you're seeing it happen where years ago you never heard of an officer being arrested. So, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm the first one to say, uh, if, if it's wrong, it's wrong. Uh, but the one thing I will stress, there's a due process. So let the, the system play out because everyone's, even as far as a non-officer, you're innocent until proven guilty. So let the process play out. And if you're guilty, that's why we have a, a judicial system in place. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's close by talking about books. Um, that's how we close every podcast. Uh, do you have any book recommendations for people? Um, it could be law enforcement related or just something that you found interesting recently. Well, I can't say because my whole day I'm in front of a computer, locked in on text, reading text, I'm reading <laughs> up on laws, reading up on changes, who's trying to submit something before uh, Sacramento to get a law changed in California training manuals, et cetera. So I try and give these old eyes a rest. But one book that I will say that has stuck out in my mind, and now let me finish my thought before these people start calling in complaints or texting. It's called The Lost Son in Pursuit of Justice. It was written by Bernard Carrick, the former NYPD commissioner and who was in New York during 9-11, which in what's kind of a connection which didn't lead me to the book, but he was abandoned when he was a young child by his mother who turned out to be unfortunately a drug addict who was found deceased and there's a question whether she was murdered or not in the very small town where my brother's a cop. So the book's all about Bernard Carrick, how he made it up through the ranks. Uh, he was in charge of uh, the corrections reform, uh, commissioner in New York, Rikers Island, et cetera, and then during 9-11 in New York. And you read his story on how, what he achieved and you say, man, that guy in law enforcement, you know, that's a guy I want to go through the door with. So I respected him for that. And then it just go to shows you no one's above the law because since then he was indicted and pled guilty to eight federal uh, felonies, served prison. Now he's out of prison, but it just goes to show you you're never above the law. So it reminds me, just like when I review these cases, no matter how much I respect an officer, everyone can stumble and have a, and, you know, be susceptible to doing something wrong. So it, it just it, it peels back the onion where you can say no one is perfect. And I really lost, it really kind of bothered me when I realized he turned out to be such a, uh, a not, an unrespectable person in life. So, uh, and it's, it's a very interesting book about that. Yeah. So that's one of the ones, because like I said, I minimize, I, if, if I'm I off time, I'm away from anything that's got 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like those lawyers are just reading those endless documents all day. They want to come home and uh, don't want to look at any text at all. And when my yeah, I, I when my uh, partner was finishing her PhD, it was I did. She didn't want to read anything else. As soon as soon as she was done with her like reading her articles and working on her dissertation stuff all day, it was just like get me away from this. Get me to something entertaining that's mindless because my mind is right. churning so hard. So where can, pe- where can people go to find out more about uh, your work and uh, what, what is the kind of, uh, if you want to file a complaint, what is the process for that? Well, if you go to our website, uh, fresno.gov slash OIR, there's, it, it walks you through the steps of filing the complaint, there's links there, et cetera. And then since uh, we came here, you know, and I heard we were, this is in response to uh, the Reform Commission, a lot of people said they didn't, never heard of us. Well, pre-COVID, we tried to get out as much as possible. We did a weekend events, et cetera. And so we tried to get out to the community as much as possible. But since then, because in response to that, we've created a Facebook page. It's, it's at, you know, at Fresno Review. There's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, all about us. So your mug is gonna be shown on our Instagram here. Uh, to show that, you know, we're trying to do what we can to get out there. But go to our website, uh, fresno.gov slash OIR, and our contact information is there, uh, phone numbers, emails, et cetera. And like I said, we respond to any and all, whether it's complaints, questions, just, uh, hey, can you come speak to our group uh, within 24 hours unless it's over the weekend. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me today. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you learned a lot from this conversation. Stay tuned for our next episode. And as always, you can support us by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want to support us financially, you can make a contribution at www.patreon.com slash Best. Both of those go a long way to help making this podcast sustainable. Please support us. Until next time.